Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, February 16th, 2024. In this week's episode, a case disturbing to even seasoned courtroom observers as a father who is charged with murdering his five-year-old daughter before storing her body for months admits to concealing her death but claims he was not responsible for her slaying. Plus, trial is set for Donna Adelson, the 74-year-old matriarch of the center of a custody battle murder plot after prosecutors announced they do not intend to offer the elderly woman a plea deal. But first, a judge reverses a decision on pivotal evidence that was previously suppressed in the trial of a woman charged with conspiring to murder a wealthy socialite. Today, we are very excited to be joined by trial attorney Gene Rossi, a former federal prosecutor, legal commentator, and trial analysis for the Law and Crime Network. Gene, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this, Gene, because, because of your experience um, and because I know you follow these cases closely. And I personally always enjoy uh, the comments that you have when I see you on television. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on these cases. So we'll, we'll jump right in. First, we go to Stamford, sure. Connecticut where the defense team for a woman charged in a conspiracy to commit murder plot wants the woman's cell phone records thrown out again. This after more than 20 days into the trial. Michelle Traconis faces charges related to the disappearance and death of socialite Jennifer Dulos, the strange wife of her former boyfriend, Fotis Dulos, who took his own life soon after being charged with murder. Cell phone records belonging to Traconis were seized in 2019, shortly after Jennifer's disappearance. However, the warrant used in the seizure was ultimately deemed defective, and a judge granted a motion to suppress the records in 2020. Now, three years later, in October of 2023, a second search warrant was, was granted for the seizure of, quote, any and all telephone account information dating back to Dulos' disappearance. This week... Defense attorneys for Traconis argued that law enforcement misrepresented facts in their affidavit, convincing a judge to allow them to broadly seize evidence, including suppressed information that was already deemed to have been unlawfully obtained. Prosecutors fired back at Traconis, telling the judge that they believe the defendant showed a sealed report on her laptop in the courtroom in full view of someone in the gallery. In a move that has sparked sharp reactions from legal analysts, the judge denied the defense efforts this time to have the evidence again suppressed and will allow the prosecution to move forward. All right, Gene, a lot to digest here, and that's why yeah. I appreciate having you on the show. I wanted to talk to you about this because it highlights this area that's still kind of developing in criminal law about the right. search of electronic devices and specifically cell phones. I remember when I was a prosecutor years ago, mm. routinely, I would get a murder case and the first thing that would be handed to me, and this was to tell you how long ago it was, would be a stack of about 60 different CDs where they had done a complete 
data dump of the defendant's cell phone. And it was just routinely handed over. Here's everything you want. And we could dig through that freely. Right. Things have changed a lot, considerably. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us and explain to listeners a little bit what the change in the law has been? Well, I to me, uh, any search warrant, even for a cell phone, and even under the changes in the law, you have to show probable cause that a crime has been committed. Two, you have to show a nexus between the crime and the cell phone. And three, you have to show that there, the, the evidence that you are seeking, you have to describe it with particularity. And, and the evidence can't be sale. That's the four requirements for a search warrant. Those concepts have not gone away. Looking at this case, what troubles me is when they got the first search warrant that was denied, were they able to look at information that was later used in the affidavit for the second search warrant that was approved? If that's the case, you got a Wong Sung fruit of the poisonous tree argument. You got access to evidence that you shouldn't have seen, and you use that evidence to get a second warrant. That's my first question. Second question is um, the Franks issue. If, a, if an agent, even under the famous case of Leon, if an agent puts in false information knowingly and misrepresents, then you need a what they call Frank's hearing after the Supreme Court case. It sounds like they did have a Frank's hearing at the second hearing, and the court found that the affidavit was not false or misleading. I got to tell you, this is a type of case that's going to go to the Supreme Court. Because when you lose a search warrant and then later on are trying to get the same cell phone data and you get a second search warrant approved, that raises all red flags. I don't care if it's a cell phone or a chest of drawers in somebody's house. Uh, that raises red flags with me. Yeah. No. And you, you, have, you have distilled the two issues that the defense highlighted in their motion as well. As far as that fruit, fruit, <laughs> fruits of well done. As far as that fruit of the poisonous tree issue, and also whether or not the affidavit was entirely forthcoming in what it told the judge in granting the warrant. So we'll we'll get into those two things, but I but I wanted to go back to what you highlighted and in, in the point that I think listeners really need to understand is that the Supreme Court not too long ago said cell phones are different. This isn't like somebody's wallet where you 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 arrested the defendant, they had a wallet on them, you seize that wallet, you know, as part of the arrest and you can go through it. Cell phones contain everything. Financial information, location information, social media, everything else, almost the entire history of who we are as human beings are on your cell phones now. So judges have said that one, as you point out, you've got to be particular about yes. what you're looking for. You can't just say, I want to see everything on this person's phone between the, the dates of uh, forever ago and up to right now. You've yep. got to say, I want it specific dates and for specific things I'm looking for. And like you pointed out, those things have to somehow have a nexus or connection to the crime. So in other words, if you're dealing with a case where it's a alleged assault what does the phone have to do with that you're going to have to explain how was that phone somehow connected to the crime now if it were say Mm -hmm. like a drug case and you could argue 
oh, well, oftentimes people who deal in drugs, they use their cell phone to set up the drug deal, blah, blah, blah. Sure, now you're creating a nexus, but you can't just say, I want in there because I'm curious. So thank you for pointing that out. Then to your point about the fruit of the poisonous tree, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, the defense yeah. brought up, hey, they had a bad warrant way back when. Now they got a new warrant and they've cured, even if the judge agrees with that, cured whatever issues are bad with it. But they would not have been, that information that they're asking for would not have been available now if it wasn't for that first bad warrant preserving it. Do you follow me? Absolutely. So they got a bad warrant, it preserved the evidence, the evidence got suppressed, but now they got a new warrant and they're able to get evidence they would not have been able to get several years ago when right. they were trying to get this evidence. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, to me, it's like immunity. If you give give someone court-ordered immunity, you, 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 the person who testifies under immunity, uh, the words can't be used against them. But if the prosecution, through independent, indirect methods, establishes a case, you can still prosecute that person. But the key is, is that prosecution tainted in any way by the the immunized testimony same concept applies here when the taint team or the detectives looked at the first search warrant data was any information conveyed to the prosecutors or agents that later did the second affidavit if there's a wall between those two uh, universes then you probably don't have a problem but if there's any leakage between the first group that looked at the cell phone and the second group, then you have a fruit of the poisonous tree because it's tainted. Yeah, yeah, excellent points. Didn't carry the day with the judge in this case, but I think excellent points that they that defense team certainly highlighted. Um, another thing I wanted you, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, put on the hat of the prosecutor a little bit, uh, to an extent and hear what you, you your thoughts are about this but some people are saying hey what you know this is another bite at the apple they they did a bad warrant they lost that was suppressed game over we should move on you know sometimes you lose the prosecution is kind of essentially making the argument that this wasn't a real problem with whether or not they should be granted that evidence whether or not it's important whether or not they should have uh, are entitled to look at it it was more they're describing as a technical issue with the drafting of the warrant. That had the warrant been drafted with more particularity, we still would have been given this same evidence that we're asking for. And we're not asking for anything outside of those particular items we're requesting. And so therefore, it doesn't really run afoul of any kind of due process issue for the defendant. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, Does that, that carry that, any that weight? Trig that triggers uh, inevitable discovery, uh, which is another concept we could talk about. What they're saying is when they presented the first affidavit, there was a technical violation. But under the inevitable discovery doctrine, they were able to cure it and inevitably got it. So that I don't know if the government argued that. But that sounds like inevitable discovery uh, and the burden of proof is on the government by a preponderance to prove that. But but here's what I what here's the way I look at it. If I go to an a, a judge or a magistrate and I present an affidavit that just doesn't have enough probable cause and it gets handed to me uh, back in the chambers, the judge will say maybe, hey, fix it up. You don't have enough. If I, if I then go and get more evidence, 
and then go back the next day and get a copacetic warrant approved, that's fine. But here, they actually got into the cell phone. And what I would like to know is, did they have a taint team, a sealed team to look at the evidence, the particularized evidence that they were allowed to look at, or did they go whole hog and look at the entire life of of, uh, uh, Ms. Traconis? If they did the latter and looked at her entire life, then that second warrant should not have been approved, period, ab initio. So I don't know what happened there. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Inevitable discovery, fruit of the poisonous tree. You're giving us a whole criminal procedure 101 class here. (laughs) We should be charging people. (laughs) Thank you. Well, this case is continuing. The judge made the decision that he did. That evidence is going to be pivotal uh, because it really was what helped them track the vehicle, understand where uh, they were, because this whole case comes down to the, you know, the disposing of garbage bags that apparently uh, uh, contained human remains. So we'll see how this all plays out. We'll continue to watch this case, but let's move on to our next case. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm just going to let listeners know that the following case does include descriptions of child abuse, which may disturb some folks. So trial continues for a father accused of fatally punching his daughter in the head before storing the child's body for months. Adam Montgomery faces a second degree murder charge of Harmony Montgomery's death, along with a disturbing allegation that the father kept the five-year-old's body in a duffel bag, moving it from various locations before eventually dumping her remains. This is just hard stuff to even even say. In a high-risk move, Montgomery's defense admitted to allegations of falsifying evidence and abusing a corpse in their opening statements. However, they contend that Montgomery did not commit the actual murder, claiming Montgomery's then-wife, Kayla Montgomery, was responsible for the death. Kayla, his ex-wife and Harmony's stepmother, took the stand testifying that the couple had been living out of a car with their three kids prior to the death. She alleged that she often witnessed Montgomery hit Harmony with a closed fist due to her incontinence, which was had worsened due to their harsh living <clears throat> conditions. The woman gave a disturbing account of the death, claiming that Montgomery punched the child in the head, then placed a blanket over the child as she cried and moaned and eventually went silent. The testimony sharply contradicts what Kayla told a grand jury in 2022 when she claimed that she had no idea what had happened to the child. Kayla is currently serving time on a perjury charge for that falsification. While Montgomery's defense sought to cast doubt On the testimony, the defendant himself was nowhere to be seen. As the father and accused murderer has been refusing to leave his cell for court proceedings while he serves a decades-long sentence on an unrelated weapons theft charge. (sighs) 
I don't even know where to begin on this, Gene, but um, right. first talk to us, I guess, about this trial proceeding uh, with the defendant not in court. And I realize that in many of these cases, we're talking about people who are accused and we should be uh, honest about that and respecting the system as it plays out. But if it proves true and this man is convicted of having beat his five-year-old daughter because she was having troubles because they were living out of a car and then is cowardly enough he can't even go to court um, is just beyond the pale to me on many different levels. But the question now from a legal perspective is, you know, one, how can this be allowed? Is this something that can be allowed or try to proceed without the defendant present? And do you see possible appeal issues on the horizon because of that? Well, I, I can just say this. A defendant has a right to be present at her or his trial. It's not absolute. You can't disrupt it. But they have an absolute right, with some exceptions, to be present at their trial. The converse is also true. If a, if a defendant has the option of not being present and is not required to be there, then they can choose not to be there. I can say this. In a case like this, with these facts and this horrendous murder alleged, uh, the absence of the defendant is probably uh, paramount on the jury's mind. And the reason is this. You brought up the word coward. They're going to conclude that Mr. Montgomery, rightly or wrongly, is a coward for not being there. And I'm concerned that Mr. Montgomery is trying to raise some appellate issue if, 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 Josh, uh, his attorney uh, said that it's okay to stay at the jail and you don't have to worry about it, the jury's not going to care. If that's the legal advice that this defendant got and the defendant's following that, that could be ineffective assistance to counsel because there's no way a jury will not draw a negative inference uh, by the absence of Mr. Montgomery. No. I don't know what procedurally took place in this case, but what my hope is, I've seen situations like this ha happen before, never where a defendant wasn't present during trial, but when they weren't present during certain hearings that still continued without their presence. And in those situations, what I've seen j done is a judge can order them out. I mean, they can refuse to leave their cell and he sure. can just say, I want an extraction order. Go physically pull that person out and bring them here to court. And they'll do that and then they will take whatever waivers are necessary from that person so that's what i'm hoping occurred here because i think that would cure any issues that you bring up because i agree with you if this was something simply something where the defense attorney said no i advise my client he doesn't have to be here and we're, we're ready to proceed my fear is that could present um problems on the horizon and and you're right when you're dealing with circumstances so despicable like this and for that person not even to have the the respect for the system to show up in court i don't see a jury being very sympathetic i agree i agree which brings me to another interesting um thing that took place in here is this kind of mea culpa that took place in opening statements where they they're essentially saying yes he you know hid her body yes he disposed of her body but he didn't actually cause her death the mom did. 
where where do you think he gets with that? Is there any advantage or is well, that kind of their you know only what? option? You know what? There was a case in Florida um, where a, a son decapitated his father, killed him. And at the trial in opening, they conceded that the son had uh, violated the, the laws against uh, corpses and hiding evidence, but disputed that there was first degree murder. He was acquitted on first degree murder, found guilty of, of the corpse charge. They're hoping that by conceding that he did mishandle in a felonious way the, 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 the body of his daughter, it's hard to even say, uh, they're hoping that the jury will cut him a break. Because I got to say this, Josh, it's not a home run. It's not the greatest argument. But they're trying to point a finger at Kayla, uh, who was in that car, and say that she actually caused the, da- the, the injury that led to her death. And the reason is this. She's a convicted perjurer. So you can't believe anything she says in front of this jury. And she's just trying to deflect criminality from herself to her ex-husband yeah that that and that was my last point which this case really does come down to a credibility call it's really going to be the prosecution has called one witness to say i was there and he did it and the defense is going to say no no he didn't she did it i don't know how they're going to put that out there other than just in pure argument but you're right if, the, if this comes down to a credibility call, her credibility, her veracity has been called into question over the fact that she is now admitting she lied under sworn testimony before about what took place. Now, I think the prosecution can certainly argue there was motivations for why she might do that. And they're certainly not going to try to say that she is un... Um, uh without blame in all of this and in fact she's she's suffering prosecution for the those perjury charges do you think that the a jury will be able to get past that and believe her testimony or do you feel that her having lied before is maybe perhaps fatal to her testimony uh, here's what i'd like to know and i'm going to answer your question if the jury somehow knows that mr montgomery is serving i think 30 to 35 years he's a career criminal they may cut him a break because this this conviction for the for the corpse uh, violation statute they'll figure you know what he's it's probably going to add another 15 years however if they don't know about that they may say a pox on both your houses both kayla and mr montgomery contributed to this death he probably hit her which caused her death but we're very troubled by her just not doing anything. So they still may find him guilty, but they may do it with a little grain of salt, thinking that she should be charged too for aiding and abetting or accessory after the fact, because she didn't really go to the police and she was in full knowledge of what happened. Yeah. I'll go you one step further on on how I think the jury will view all of this. I don't think, I don't, I don't, I don't think a jury is going to walk anyone accused of taking the life of a five-year-old beautiful child. The pictures of this kid, she's a beautiful young child that was beaten to death over having wet herself because she's living out of a car. 
just just put that sentence out there and mm. I don't think that you're going to find 12 people on this earth who are going to walk a person for that. So they're going to base this on uh, this conviction, I imagine, on on the evidence as it's presented. But I'm just saying, when you go into a case with those kind of facts and circumstances, there's there's very few people who want to see that person walk out the door free. I, I agree. I'm just I'm just presenting a possible uh, defense or compromise. No, I, I completely I, I completely understand you, and I and I and I don't disagree with with your thoughts on that. And it, I don't know if they know that he's already in custody. I I can't imagine why that would come out. But they, they but, but I got to tell you, Josh, they may sense that he's in jail for a long time. That yeah. Even if they're not told that, they may sense that. Yeah, absolutely. They're, the jurors pick up on a lot of stuff that you don't they think do. they're really paying attention to. I remember I had a case where. The defendant, you know, was in court every single day in a suit. No one, we never talked about him being in custody during the trial, but the jurors were observant. I know this from having talked to one afterwards that they saw that he was wearing those same jailhouse shoes every single day. So they're paying attention and they're putting things together. Oh, absolutely. Um, Anyhow, let's finally move on to our last case out of Tallahassee, Florida, where the matriarch at the center of an alleged murder-for-hire plot is set to face trial, with prosecutors indicating that no plea offer will be extended to the 74-year-old woman. Donna Adelson pleaded not guilty to charges of first-degree murder, solicitation, and conspiracy in the shooting death of Dan Markell, her former son-in-law. Markell was previously married to Adelson's daughter, Wendy Adelson, before he was gunned down in the driveway amid a contentious divorce and custody battle. Donna Adelson was arrested at the airport en route to Vietnam days after the conviction of her son, Charles Adelson, for his role in the murder-for-hire plot. During Charles Adelson's trial, wiretapped conversations between Donna Adelson and her son were featured heavily, and they're likely to play a key role this time around. Adelson's next court appearance is scheduled for the week of July 22nd, when a status hearing will determine the next steps in the case. Meanwhile, Adelson remains in custody with her attorney alleging terrible treatment of the elderly woman and claiming she is rapidly declining while incarcerated. All right, Gene, I know you followed the trial of Charles Adelson very closely. Are you surprised with how prosecutors waited? That's my my biggest question in all of this. Waited until after Charles's conviction to arrest Donna, and now they're not even entering into any kind of plea negotiation. What are your thoughts on just all of this? Uh, my thoughts are this, Josh. When you have a client and you're in jail, tell them this. Don't make a phone <laughs> call that's going to be recorded. So yeah. my understanding is after Charles was convicted of murder, there were phone calls that were recorded between Charles and his mother that were not very um, helpful to uh, Donna Adelson. So yeah. that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. I know what's going on here. They're willing to do a plea off for the prosecutors but I don't think Donna is willing to, Donna Abelson is willing to say, I contributed and conspired in the murder of Professor Markell. I don't think she's able to get to that point. She's probably giving him half a loaf, a quarter of a loaf, maybe saying after I heard about it. But from right. the prosecutor's view, she was at the beginning and she helped hatch this plan. So that's what's probably going on. They're willing to give a generous plea 
but she's not willing to allocute and admit her conduct. Yeah. No, you're, you're probably right. I mean, no, knowing the kind of character that it takes to plan a murder-for-hire plot of your son-in-law because you're upset about child custody issues, that same kind of personality I can see as being the kind of personality who won't accept some sort of reasonable uh, plea that involves them admitting their involvement in guilt. Totally yep. makes sense to me. I'm... I'm curious again because I I, I I I think you're right. I think that there there were phone calls made afterwards that cinched the the deal for prosecutors as to why they decided to then arrest her. I'm wondering, and what are your thoughts on this, if they were even being more clever by allowing her to remain out, not arresting her while her 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 son or son-in-law was on uh, trial hoping and expecting that once he was convicted, those phone calls would start to be made and they could start to record them without any kind of warrant issues or anything. Do you think they were being that kind of clever? Josh, I think you are absolutely right. First off, I watched, um, I think it was Dateline or one of those uh, shows. This prosecutor, I forget her name. She is phenomenal. She is outstanding. And she's a chess match player. And I, I think you are right. She probably let Donna Adelson hang herself figuratively by, by react, letting her react to the conviction of her son or the verdict of guilty. And then even letting her, you know, get in that car and go to the airport. Because you can guarantee yeah. she yeah. was surveilled 24-7. Yeah, that's a really good point. They knew they were going to, to arrest her. They well, they knew they were going to arrest her before she got to that airport. I I think you're right. I think the arrest at the airport was planned because then there's no argument that she wasn't trying to get out of the country and flee. It was genius, genius. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of. They could have arrested no, Josh, her earlier and said, "Well, we knew she had flight plans," and she could say, "Well, I was never going to follow through on that." You're at the airport, lady. That's how we know we were you were following through on it. And I here's like the best part. She was going to Vietnam, which doesn't have yeah. extradition. And it was a one-way ticket. <laughs> hey, hey, as they say, Josh, minor point. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Very interesting. Very clever work and excellent, like you said, I think excellent work on the prosecution of, of this case so far. Oh, yeah. um, so do you think, uh, seeing the, the strength of the case they put on against um, Charles... Do you think they essentially just run it back with uh, the case against Donna? I mean, the, the whole thing seems to kind of fit together with the same set of circumstances because it's all around those phone calls. I think what's going to hurt Donna the most, Donna Adelson, Miss Ailes, Mrs. Adelson, is those phone calls, of course, for getting trying to get on the plane to Vietnam. Those are bad. But I think the evidence that she brought money to the house uh, uh, to give to the girlfriend of the killer. There were two guys that, ki that were involved, but one guy was the shooter. So the girlfriend of the shooter, uh, Mrs. Adelson, the mother, brought money that was washed. And that, that, that vignette, if you, if you will, that one is pretty powerful. That's very powerful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is... 
you know, while the case was going on, I thought perhaps he had some arguments and, and, and I remember watching his testimony. I didn't think he did all that bad. But, you know, when you start to piece this all together, this case is it's a really solid case for the prosecution. Yeah. Last question on this. Everyone keeps asking. We've we've now picked apart nearly every person involved. You've got Charles Adelson, who apparently was involved in the the planning yep. and paying for it. You've got the actual killer. You've got the yep. the intermediary with his girlfriend at the time. Now you've got the mom. At the heart of this whole thing is a divorce and custody battle, yep. and that person, Wendy Adelson, has not been charged. Do you think? Have you seen evidence that you believe? arrests are perhaps forthcoming in that case as well. Here's my view. I think that the prosecutor, the lead prosecutor, feels in her heart that Wendy Adelson was a conspirator and that she was the motivating factor. It just makes total sense. And there's some weird stuff that happened uh, over the timeline of this case. But does the prosecutor feel she has enough a reasonable probability to prove uh, conspiracy by beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't think the prosecutor's there. It's probably likely that after the Mrs. Adelson, the mother, uh, that this could be the end of the road. But I'll guarantee you that prosecutor in her heart of hearts feels that Wendy was involved somehow. I'll bet you, too, that part of these ongoing plea negotiations that seem to be stalling out. Yep was the question of sure you can get a, a a reasonable deal on this you've got to get up wendy and she may just she's probably refusing to flat out do that absolutely you're totally right totally no. right no totally right well we will continue to follow that case and all of these as well but in the meantime that is our show genie thank you again so much for coming on this week where thank can you. people find out more about you well i work at a law firm called carlton fields and my uh Hashtag is uh, Rossi4VA, and you can find me at carltonfields.com. Fantastic. And thank you again. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.